0: His heart. He's authentic, and he's just a really. I just really want y'all to give him a hand. And <laughs> after he gets after he gets finished, we we're, we're gonna receive an offering for him. After he gets finished, we're gonna do it after
1: this time. Uh, so I want you to not only clap for him, I want you to bless him uh, financially, if you. I'll go ahead and say all this now. When it gets through, we'll just pass the offering. You write the checks to River Life or do your credit card to River Life, and we'll give it all to him to to bless him. So let's thank you, Randall, for coming. Lord bless you. Thank you. They forgot to give me applause. (laughs) I'm just kidding. How are you? Uh, This is the 9 o'clock service. I guess everybody knows that. (laughs) We're without excuse when it comes, especially today, with the technology that we have of um, anything making us late, it seems. But um, it's it's really good to be back with you. The last time I was here, this room was configured different. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess uh, I, I hope it's not your intention to go ahead and make it 360 degrees <laughs> around. No, not,
0: we'll
1: you are where you want to be, at least for right now. Uh, I love those testimonies. Um, I have the privilege of hearing so many wonderful testimonies in my travels around the world, and um, one that has really had a powerful impact on me that I heard recently, and maybe many of you are familiar with it. It's not the kind of thing that makes the secular news, but um, it seems right now that there is um, an increased frequency of appearances, personal appearances that the Lord is making in the, in the Muslim world, in particular to their clerics, uh, to their leaders. And um, when I first heard that, I, I know with some, because of the sensationalism that we all have become jaded by, especially in charismatic circles, that um, maybe we could question the, the validity of those reports. But several years ago, We were in Pakistan and uh, had been there for a number of days. I'm I'm guessing it had been 15 or 20 years ago that we were there, maybe longer. And we'd been there for a number of days, and there was a gentleman that had been in the pastor's meeting, uh, the pastors and leaders that had come for training. And he asked uh, to meet with us uh, along with an interpreter. And uh, he began to share with me, and I'll just make this as brief as I possibly can. He began to share with me how... That at that time he was one of the top five clerics in all of the Muslim world. Uh, He uh, lived in, uh, I believe, at that time he lived in maybe uh, uh, not Ramadan, but um, one of one of the Saudi, not Saudi Arabia, but one of the cities there in the Middle East, one of the major Meccas for all of the Muslim world, and he was studying the Bible to disprove it. And while he was studying the Bible, the Lord Himself appeared to him. And uh, obviously he had quite an experience of transformation. He was so overjoyed that he went immediately and shared the experience with his wife and also with his brother-in-law, who was uh, a member of the police force there. Uh, when they shared this, when he shared the story, they beat him brutally and broke his legs put him in the hospital, and you've got to remember he's telling me this whole experience. And uh, they put him in the hospital, and Jesus appeared to him the second time and said, what are you doing here? He said, well, they broke my legs. And Jesus said to him, well, my legs are not broken, so neither are yours. So you would think that this would settle the issue. He gets up, walks out of the hospital, goes straight back to his brother-in-law, And to his wife, and tells them that Jesus has appeared to him and healed his legs. Now, this, he's telling this to the man that had broken his legs. He takes, they take him then, hang him in a jail cell by his hair until he slips into a coma, and then they discard his body into the jungle. And uh, for three days, he remained there, he said, slipping in and out of consciousness, and there were times when he would gain consciousness and there were wild beasts that were snarling at him, but then they never harmed him. After three days, he began to hear someone speaking in a language that he was unfamiliar with. And uh, as he heard this voice getting closer to him, he recognized that it was a woman, but he didn't understand the language. And uh, he found out later on that this was a believer who had been who had seen him in a vision and was praying in other tongues and was led to where he was in this remote part of the jungle she nursed him back to health and there he was sitting in this heavily guarded hotel that I was staying in he said i came to let you know that since then i have personally you got to understand uh, proportionately how many people this is in comparison to the West, he said, since then I have personally baptized 900 people in the name of our Lord Jesus. And he said, I just wanted to come and tell you. And know, oh, by the way, he changed my name to Elijah. <laughs> so when people are suspect about those stories, I remember, I'll never forget that as long as I live sitting in that hotel room and listening to this powerful, powerful testimony. I believe that regardless of how foreboding things are right now in the world, that we are getting positioned for some of the most powerful things we have ever witnessed in all of church history. Because we serve a God of exceeding greatness. Once we see something that is great, He does that just to give us an appetizer of what is about to come. I'll talk to this side because that side over there, their enthusiasm is underwhelming. I said exceeding greatness. And I do believe that he meets us at our level of expectation. Because people who never expect anything are never disappointed. True? Now, I was asked to teach on something in particular, and that's probably a good thing because that ensures you that I won't drift too far. Uh, But the text that I'd like for you to take with me is found in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and I'll introduce to you this in, in terms of a principle, and then by the time that I conclude my remarks, it's my desire to picture it for you. 1 John chapter 3, and um, I'll join you there in just a moment. Is that mine? Thank you. I'll join you there in just a moment. Uh, I uh, was writing a few months ago about the grace of God. And uh, as I sat there uh, typing away feverishly on my keyboard, I felt for a moment that I maybe needed to slow down because I very possibly could be embellishing somewhat Mm. because I was talking about the grace of God in this particular blog. And uh, as I paused for a moment because it's important to me to be very accurate in what I convey, whether it be written or spoken, I I felt the Lord speak to me very clearly and say, Randall, it's impossible for you to exaggerate when it comes to my grace. And so you're looking at someone this morning that has been issued a license to exaggerate. I've come to understand that for most of us, I don't care how long you've been walking with God, that uh, our life in God really does rise and fall in our security that we perceive to have in His love. I think religion has assumed for a long time that we can't love God for who He is, but that we have to be regularly motivated by threats of hell and by missing an impending evacuation from the planet. And it's those threats that motivate or possibly manipulate us to love him as we should. How many of you would agree with me that you spend most of your time repenting for your lack of love for him rather than repenting for your unbelief in his unconditional love for you? Does that make sense to you? We've become so focused and fixated on our failures rather than on His faithfulness. And I meet so many people in different places that uh, whether they are willing to admit this or not, they have this image of God that is schizophrenic and abusive. This childlike mentality, he loves me, he loves me not. Right? right? He loves me today, he loves me not. If things are going well and it seems that some of my prayers are being answered, he must really love me. But if there are things that happen that are traumatic and tragic, then I must be doing something wrong. That's all too familiar to us, isn't it? It's tragic that we have those misconceptions about him, but it is something that remains latent even in those of us who have maybe been walking for, with him for a long, long time. I have something to divulge about him. I have a well known secret to divulge about him, if you would be interested in knowing. And that is, and this, see, this word has a connotation today that immediately evokes a, a negative image. But God is obsessive. When we hear that word, obsessive, we think about a disorder. But God is truly obsessive. He refuses to stop thinking about you. He is, he is thinking about you when you're not thinking of Him. He's thinking of you when you are thinking things that you shouldn't think.
0: <laughs>
1: when I wake up in the morning, I'm beginning to understand that He's just been waiting on me to open my eyes so that He might re- further reveal how magnanimous He is, how, gen- how radically indescribably generous He is. When the Scripture says that He numbers the hairs on our head, that doesn't mean that He just knows how many are there. He has a number for each one of them. I want to submit to you that's obsession. When I was combing what little hair I have, this morning I looked down and there was one on the sink and I, you know, I didn't grieve over there's one more God. But I thought to myself, he knows whether that's 5,682 or not. That's obsessive. <laughs> and so I think that probably what I want to talk to you about, if you allow me, is healing our image of God and of ourselves. Because they are tied together. They're inextricably tied together, healing our image of God and of ourselves. Before I read the text, and I'm assuming they're going to put it on the screen, I know you've had technical difficulties (laughs) already this morning. There it is. Before we read that verse of scripture, I I heard about a young lady who had never been to church before in all of her life. I think she was 15 or so. She'd never been to church before in all her life. She didn't know anything about God. She was unfamiliar with any of the books of the Bible, never heard the gospel story, even in its its most elementary uh, sense. And so this 15 year old girl goes to church one day, and after leaving church, there were some of her friends that asked her what her impressions were. She said, well, I'll put it very succinctly for you. God is good. We are bad. Try harder. God is good. We are bad. Try harder. In 1 John chapter 3, these words are very familiar to you, but I'm just asking that we might be able to see them as if we'd never seen them before. That is possible. You do know that, don't you? Behold, what manner of love. Actually, I'm not reading it in probably the way John received it. Because as he is writing on ancient papyrus 2,000 years ago, And he is reflecting on the encounter that he had with Jesus in his lifetime. And he is trying to recapture the emotion that he experienced. I believe as he picked up that quill and pressed it toward the papyrus to write these words that we read so many hundreds of years later, that he writes the first word, behold, but it doesn't come out that way, it comes out this way. Behold! It's astonishment. Behold, what manner of love is this, that the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore it does not yet appear, now I'm quoting from my translation, so I better go back to the screen. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Now can you give me the next verse, please? Beloved, we are now the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Unfortunately, that last verse has been relegated to something that is in the distance. It's out there on the horizon. That we are all awaiting that at His return. I'm certainly not here to, to, deba- to debate the timing of that, but I don't think that's what John was resonating with when he says, It does not yet appear what we shall be, but when we see Him, we shall be like Him, for we shall know Him as He really is is because that's what creates the transformation is when you see him as he really is. Agree? I'm convinced that like C.S. Lewis said that God created us in his image and we have returned the favor and so as a result we have become like the God that we believe in which is intolerant that is schizophrenic, that is temperamental, yeah, that's right. that is unpredictable. But you must remember a little bit about this man who penned these words. He will refer to himself in third person consistently in his own gospel, the last gospel in the arrangement of gospels, and he will refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. For so long, I thought that that was some sort of false humility on his part. Do you remember in the resurrection account, he will give his account, his eyewitness of that, and he will talk about whenever they receive news that the stone had been rolled away. This, what sounded to be utter fantasy, the report came from Mary. And uh, he is on in this foot race toward the tomb. And uh, he will refer to Peter and uh, will make note that he actually outruns Peter. Right? In the early morning light, in the dawn of that third day, he makes note that he outruns him. But he will say of himself, Peter and the other disciple. But then I began to realize the nine times that he referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, it was not humility at all. I think really it was expressing the fact that he had a greater revelation of the love of God than all the others combined. And that comes bleeding through those three epistles or letters he writes and especially comes bleeding through The 22 chapters that we refer to at the end of Scripture as being the revelation of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, the book of Revelation has been used to terrify God's people for hundreds of years now, and that is tragic to say the least. The last book of the Bible was not intended, and he is the one who receives this revelation. John does is the revelation of Jesus Christ and not the Antichrist. It's the revelation of His finished work and His transcendent love for you. It has been hijacked by those who are fear mongers that seek to manipulate and intimidate people into a relationship with God. That if you don't serve Him, this is what awaits you. And I want everything He's got for me. <laughs> now I create maybe a little controversy in the room. It won't be my first time doing that. But I tell you without fear of contradiction that the book of Revelation belongs to you. And it is, it is much filled with the love and compassion of Jesus as any of the Gospels or any of John's letters that I refer 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it, it is filled and dripping with his love for you. It's been stolen from us. But that's another time. And maybe I'll come back if the invitation is there to talk to you about that. You know, John is referred to. It's important that I give you a little background, a little resume on this man. Just a little John is referred to also as uh, one of those inner three. Remember, you know, Jesus had different levels of relationship. He came, you know, he was sent to the world for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. But then he comes to the nation. He comes to his own and his own receives him not. And then he comes to the multitudes. And then out of the multitudes there are at least 70 that he empowers and gives gifts to. Out of the 70, there are 12, but out of the 12, there are three. And out of the three, there is only one that leans upon his breast. And so John is not only a part of that triad, those three that are kept next to him, Peter, James, and John, but he is also the one that will lean upon Jesus' breast. And for so many years, I thought that maybe that was—it reflected some sort of partiality on Jesus's part, but then I began to realize as I took a closer look at John and Peter in particular and James that the reason why that Jesus kept them so close to him is because they were the ones that had the most, it seems, potential for getting in trouble.
0: <laughs>
1: so it's almost as if I better keep them close to me. But John says again, what kind of love is this? It defies description. It is beyond definition. It truly is something that just cannot be taught. It has to be experienced. That's why he would open his first epistle by saying, I saw, I felt, I touched, I heard. This is not something that is a theory to me. This is something that was, was an encounter that he had with truth. Jesus was not a theorist or a theologian. Jesus was truth. Jesus gave Jesus was truth with a pulse. He was truth made tangible. the truth about God, the truth about how he feels about you. What he has always known about you and wanted to reveal to you. Oh, so good. Thank you, Jesus. See, we, we tend to think that well, if he if he really revealed everything about us to us, that it would crush us under the weight of condemnation. And see, that's why so many of us we labor with things that are factual but are not truthful. There are a lot of things that are factual about me that are not the truth about me. Uh, many of you have been abused in a church culture with, uh, with, the, uh, with the Scripture. Well, I'm supposed to speak the truth to you in love. Ever heard that one? When somebody assumes that they can correct you, well, I'm just speaking the truth to you in love. You can speak the truth and it not be through the conduit of love and not be the truth that's paradoxical, but it's true, isn't it? Because if I speak the truth to you in love, then it does not focus on what appears about you. it doth not yet appear what you shall be it does it does not. Make clear what everybody else can see, what is obvious, but it appeals to a higher truth and a higher reality about you. I may be guilty of all kinds of things, but that doesn't mean that's who I am. I understand how difficult this is for the carnal mind to receive, because it has embedded in it an ego, which has all kinds, many shades of meaning, but if you want to know, you know, this is basically my training in psychology, but if you really want to know The basis of what it is, if you will pardon the oversimplification here, just make an acronym of it. It means edging God out. Ego. It is not allowing you to think His thoughts about you. When do you think God discovers your human foibles? When you tell Him. I told a group last night that for years, whenever the church as a whole has heard the word confess, it has always had, uh, it has created an aversion for them. It has had a negative tone to it. Confess. Right? But the word also means to agree with. It's not that God is getting you to divulge all these dark secrets about you. As if he doesn't know again till you tell him, but is really more about you agreeing with what he has always known concerning you and been desperate for you to discover
0: awesome. Woo. yes Jesus. <laughs>
1: you know uh, several years ago because i've i've always been someone that, that has loved to go to the edge, and um, I don't mean to the, to the edge of trying God, uh, I mean, but to the, to the limits of the flat land thinkers, just to see if there's another horizon out there beyond where they said there was, no more. And I I said, Lord, I I, I so appreciate you giving me a greater faith to receive revelation than than I have have a fear of being deceived. I really appreciate this. But I'm I'm, I'm asking you to to give me uh, something that I can anchor to that would ensure that I wouldn't get into heresy. And he gave me a very simple answer. And he took me to... The answer that Jesus gave to the Pharisees when they were asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? Out of 613, not 10, out of 613, what's the greatest commandment? And without hesitation, Jesus said, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and body, and mind, and that you love your neighbor as you love yourself. What a powerful statement that was. Because embodied in it is the litmus test for truth. If you want to know whether what you're hearing is truth or heresy, I'm going to give you the litmus test for it right now. Because he said, if it causes you to love me more, and in turn will cause you to love yourself more, and love other people more, you can be assured that it is truth. Now that may be profoundly simple to you, but to me it's simply profound. Because if you are pondering certain thoughts in your mind and there's certain ideas or certain revelation that you have and you're wondering, can I really trust that? Is that, is that doctrinally correct? I promise you, if it motivates you to love Him more, which will in turn cause you to love yourself more, which as a result you will love others because that is the sequence in which it comes. See, we're trying to love other people more without having a revelation of his love for us. And you cannot give what you have not received, very simply. What manner of love is this? And he starts talking about a father. And he says that, you know, this is something that has not fully appeared, that we are now the children of God. Right now. I take umbrage with people that suggest that the way that I entered into this relationship with my father was that I was adopted. I was not adopted. I was born again by an incorruptible seed, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Which means I have his DNA. Now, I was not adopted. That's another biblical concept altogether that is different. This is not the means by which you receive your identity. It's the means by which you receive your inheritance. The spirit of adoption is something entirely different. But you've got to understand that you were made partakers of his divine nature. Wow. So you are now the children of God. And the reason why it does not yet appear to you, now you've got to follow this analogy. The reason why it has not yet appeared to you is because many of you, I, it makes no difference to me how long you've been walking with God, are still in a state of gestation. What kind of love is this? It does not yet appear what we shall be, but when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall know him as he is. <clears throat> I have three sons. My wife and I have three sons. And uh, thirty over 31 years ago, we were elated to discover that we were expecting our first child. And uh, we, had, uh, we were novices in this area, of course. We, we certainly listened to so many others that had already had children, but this was, this was an experience that was something it totally new, of course, to us. And so we had the great joy of, of, of watching my wife as she, her, this seed began to grow inside of her. Uh, and uh, especially we're excited whenever we begin to see the movement of our son's foot we didn't know it was a boy this is back in the day when we did not have the great technology that exists today which i went and watched my grandchildren on ultrasound phenomenal to see their facial features and to to see their heart pulsating and see their rib cage and their skeletal structure it was amazing Now, the reason why that I give you that analogy is that when my son was born, Luke Anthony Worley, 31 years ago on November the 26th, on Thanksgiving Day, when he emerged from his mother's womb into the bright lights of the delivery room and uh, these rubbery hands reached for him, the obstetrician, he... Pulls him from his mother's body. The first person to touch him outside of his mother's womb is a total stranger. He has been in gestation for nine months. He has lived and floated in amniotic fluid in unmitigated darkness. He does not become my son at the moment that I see his face Or I discover his gender there in that delivery room around 1 o'clock on November the 26th, 1983, was it? 81. He does not become my son at that moment. He is my son from the moment my seed fertilized his mother's egg. He was my son. I did not know who he was. I didn't know what gender he would be. Neither did he know anything about his father, but he was my son. I hope you're connecting the dots with me. When he opened his eyes, or squinted to open his eyes into the bright lights of that delivery room for that first moment, and I'm looking at him, and I'm wondering, can he see me? Can he see his mother? Does he know? And the doctors later you know, begin to counsel us and encourage us and say, make sure that you talk to him a lot because he will recognize your voice even though he doesn't know your face. <laughs> it does not yet appear what you shall be. I don't want to offend you, but there are a lot of people that have been in a gestation period for a lot longer than nine months. Christ has been been taking form in you and you in him. They continued to tell us, you know, I was concerned especially this being our first experience with our boy when I would see him when he would finally open up his eyes which was not very often and he would look around, I would watch him lose control as they would roll all about his head and and of course they they told me once again the reason why he's doing that is because he's never been exposed to any light and over time as his eyes are exposed to light or illumination, he will gain control over them and he will be able to turn his eyes towards certain subjects or individuals and focus on them and make the connection between the voice and the face. See, I'm convinced that there are a lot of people that don't realize what John was getting after here. I'm not, uh, you know, maybe you feel like I'm reading into it or taking liberty with John's revelation But when I read that several years ago, I began to realize that while that was true of my own son, I think that that is true of many of us. And some of you may be wondering, is he suggesting that I need to be born again, again? That's exactly what I'm saying. We sometimes need to go through a new birth again and again and again. That's why Paul would say, my little children in whom I travail until Christ be formed In you. He's talking to people that are already believers. He was my son. I was his father. It wouldn't be for a year later that he would be able to form on his lips his first words. Da, da. Not until then. But he still didn't fully understand what that meant to call me daddy. See I think many of us. We don't realize just how much of an evolution that we have been in. And I'm not afraid of the word evolution. I'm not a Darwinian, but I am an evolutionist. I believe that we are forever being changed from glory to glory, from faith to faith. I'm glad I have. How about you? I mean, I want upgrades every day. If they're available, I want them. Some of us are still operating with old operating systems. And that's the reason why, when we're introduced to glorious truths, we can't get it very quickly, is because we can't interface with it. Just like your computer almost crashes and implodes. When you try to download something new to it, it's because you need a new operating system. If there's anything that the church needs right now desperately, it's a new operating system so that we can receive these downloads and we can become conscious of who we already are. For most of the church world, they live in a state of being in a coma. But you don't stop talking to people just because they're in a coma because they can still hear. As long as you keep talking to them, their consciousness is able to pick up those sounds And that is really what will cause them to experience a resurrection so that they awaken to who they have always been. (laughs) As he grew, he began to understand the connection between me and the word Father. He began to understand that I didn't choose him. And neither did he choose me. But had I been given the choice, I would have chosen him. I heard somebody say something earlier. And I think maybe I referenced it before when I was here. Uh, And it's so true. You were talking about there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Right? Love that. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. And death is not just about the cessation of existence or when you flatline and they determine that your vital signs are no longer functioning and they, the coroner pronounces you dead. No, no. Death has greater implications than that. You can be sitting there right now with a pulse and be dead because the word death in its original meaning was not just flatlining. The word death in its original meaning was a separation from a consciousness of God and who you are. In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die, and dying, you will die. It's, It's a tragic thing to think that people are that still have a pulse, yet they're dead. They're totally unconscious of this. There is a revelation that is coming an unveiling. You know, when you say revelation, it kind of has a mystical tone to it. But there's a revelation that is coming to his church that is, is, is co- going to totally uh, debunk all of the lies that we've been taught by religion, that is going to cause us to have an unveiling, that is going to cause us to understand that there was no religion in the garden. I said there was no religion in the garden. There was no systemization of truth. Did you hear that? Well, there's no systemization of truth. It was real and transparent. It was, it was something that you didn't have to learn. Because, you see, that's where most of us labor is I haven't learned enough. I'm on a steep learning curve. And it's about how much more I can learn. And there is value to that. But I want to tell you, please hear this. If you don't hear anything else in the ramblings here this morning, hear this. Whenever you hear truth, you're not being told something you didn't know. You just didn't know that you knew it. And I don't mean that to sound just sound clever. It's true. Whenever you hear truth about Him and about yourself, you're not hearing something that is new. You just didn't know that you already knew it. We all are born with a degree Of amnesia. We are born with a loss of memory. And it's because of collective memory. It's because of what happened to us in the death or the separation that took place in the garden. And as a result, we you've heard this before in developmental psychology, they say that you only use about 10% of your brain. Why do you think that is the case? So you don't ever really forget anything. You just don't know how to remember it. I'm trying, you know, would you please remember me, the thief cries. I'm, uh, what is he talking about? Don't forget about me. Think good thoughts about me. No, I think that this is a cry of a thief that is really resonating something that came all the way from the garden because when Adam lost his own identity and he couldn't remember who he was he gives voice to Adam in the alienation and the death that took place in his relationship with God and says would you please help me get my memory back if you could get your memory back your whole life would change You have you have a stunning future behind you, not in front of you, but behind you. Most of us, our lives are totally defined on quote unquote defining moments, or where we started to where we are. And you are living in a limited consciousness, and that word consciousness scares a lot of people. It's a biblical word. It was hijacked by the metaphysical and the new age people. It's a biblical word. That's why he sprinkles our consciousness with his blood. What's in that blood? The DNA of who you really are. Excuse me while I get a little passionate about it. You know, when he delivers a man this 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 man who is anonymous in the in the Gadarenes in a he lives in a graveyard. They couldn't chain him. I mean, there was no amount of deliverance ministry that could help this man. He runs naked. They put chains on him and he snaps them like threads. And he lives in a graveyard or amongst the tombs. And the word tomb there means memories. This man lives with thousands of memories that are not his own. He's walking among the dead and the alienated and the separated. But when he sees Jesus... And He is delivered. He is suddenly clothed and in His right mind. It does not yet appear what you shall be. But when you see Him. I know I'm all over the map. If if my three sons walked in here today. Even if I didn't introduce them, at least a couple of them in particular, you would know instantly, that's my son. My youngest told me uh, several months ago that he was somewhere maybe in the mall or something. And uh, a guy walked up to him and he's (coughs) doing this. He thought, whoa, what's (laughs) this guy He's just staring at him. And finally he said, oh, I'm sorry. He said, "Um, you're Randall Worley's son, aren't you? He said, yeah, how did you know? He said, how did I know? (laughs) He said, you walk like him. Your gestures are like him. The tone of your voice is like him. When I got close enough and I saw your hands, I noticed you've got big hands like your dad. And even your nails. What is the point I'm making? He doesn't have to try to do that. He didn't watch me walking and think I'm going to replicate that. Come on now. No. When he looks down at his hands, the, the, the skin pigment, right down to the skin pigment, it looks like mine. I'm trying to help you understand that this is what has happened in the regeneration. But religion has distorted this and done everything in its power to abort this. This word abort has been, you know, it has been totally confined to something that is natural in nature. But the 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 most cruel form of abortion takes place not in clinics but in churches where people consistently are reminded of what they are not instead of who they are. And if you hear it long enough, you will eventually begin to believe it. No wonder people are as confused as a termite in a yo-yo. They don't know who they are. Because they will hear one week about who they are and then the next week the pastor or teacher will feel it's his responsibility to make sure that the people are walking in righteousness and he will browbeat them and condemn them and threaten them with hell without realizing it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. I'm not in denial about any of those things. But, you know, if I tell you not to think about something, what are you going to do? You're going to think about it. So we have, we have increased this sin consciousness. I've got four minutes after 12 here, so I guess you need to go. And I'm just getting started. So, but I told you I'd start with a principle. I'm going to go to a picture very quickly an obscure story that is found in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9 about a man who has a rather unusual name. He lives in obscurity for most of his life. His name is Mephibosheth. I I have uh, looked at this man's name, and it reflects the, the, the theme of what I've been talking about. I have looked at this man's name for years now and have been mystified by it. Some uh, interpretations of his name means that it, the exterminator of shame. Others say that his name means a shameful thing. I'm not sure exactly why he is given such a name. I could surmise as to why he is given such a name because if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the, the giving of names to children was usually influenced either by a prophecy or it was influenced by the events surrounding the birth of the child. And there are plenty of examples to uh, prove that. Is it possible that Mephibosheth is given the name a shameful thing maybe because he was illegitimate or maybe he was an unwanted child? Maybe he was... Uh, one that was a problem pregnancy. There are all kinds of things that we could speculate about as to why he was given such a name. You can imagine introducing himself later in life by basically saying, My name is shameful. I'm a shameful thing, which would cause all kinds of innuendo to work in people's not minds as to why was he given that name. Well, you know, if Isaac you know, introduces himself, Hi, my name is Laughter. Right, Or Joshua would say, hi, my name is Joshua, Yeshua. What a name to be given, akin to the name of Jesus. On and on you could go. Why is he given this name, Mephibosheth? If that's not bad enough, and of course, there's so much that influences us prenatally that I think that even science is just now beginning to... Ca- Y'all going to give me just a few more minutes? I see concern in your eyes because... I noted what time it was. I shouldn't have told you that. But I promise to make this the best part of the whole morning. Okay. <clears throat> There's so much that happens to us prenatally that sets things in motion, that marks us uh, in ways that we are f- not fully aware of. If if you don't believe that's the, that's true, then you just look at, the the visit that takes place between Mary and Elizabeth whenever John the Baptist is now six months in his mother's womb. And uh, the implication is, is that Elizabeth has not felt John the Baptist move the first time until Mary shows up at the house. And as soon as she greets him, John the Baptist begins to leap within his mother's womb. This presumably stillborn child begins to move at the sound of mary's voice and the reason being is because she too was carrying something very similar in nature and uh, their destinies were intertwined because you will never get a jesus unless you first get a john the baptist because he is the one that causes you to repent or turn to be able to see him to begin with otherwise you would have never heard of him or never had any interest in him and so there is something to that, isn't it? There's a lot that goes on prenatally that shapes us. So what do you think that he is hearing through his, his mother's abdomen? And then uh, he's given that name. I'll, I'll hasten on here because this is where we segue right into the story. There is a great civil war that has been going on for an extended period of time between Saul... And David. The Bible refers to it as a civil war. This uh, causes the feuds that, that we read about even here in the West or in Europe to pale in comparison when you read about these feudal wars that took place between clans. And uh, this, is a, this is a bloodbath that is going on and I, I will leap again over a lot. You, will, you remember whenever Saul and Jonathan fall in battle, this tragedy and the news comes back to the palace. When it finally gets back to the palace, they, are, they in, feverishly begin to evacu- evacuate the palace. A nurse scoops up the little five-year-old boy named Mephibosheth. What has he heard until this point that has created question in his mind? Now he is listening to everyone as they are frantically and in a panic evacuating the palace the reason why they did is because they assumed in keeping with what usually was the case whenever a king fell in battle was that the conquering king would his first item of business would to go would be to go and search out every one of the fallen king's seed and wipe them out so that there was not ever a possibility that that seed could come forth and be a threat to him in the future. And so this nurse, under a false assumption, see, the devil doesn't care what you believe as long as it's a lie. Under this false assumption, she scoops him up and she starts running down the steps of the palace and in the process she drops him. When she drops him and picks him up, he is left lame in his feet. Now we have set the second strike against this guy. His name means shame, and now he's crippled. He has a disability that will keep him from ever feeling like a man. He is taken off into this place of total exile, in seclusion, and living under a lie all of his life that David had a vendetta toward him. He will grow into a young man and then one day he doesn't realize that David began to reflect on the relationship that he had had with Jonathan. There's so much here that I'm tempted to get into. That David had had a, this marvelous relationship that was inexplicable. I mean, it was, it's even said, and I, I know that liberal theologians have had to try to make it something that it's not, in saying that there was something that was, uh, that was very questionable about the relationship that David had with Jonathan whenever he says that the love that they had for one another was better than the love of women. And so the suggestion is is that, you know, there is something that smacks of or sounds like a gay relationship, and that's absurd, asinine, ridiculous, help me, give me another adjective, uh, preposterous, thank you. That's not what he's implying at all what they were experiencing was covenantal love that was something that was coming into them and flowing through them that was not about them but was about something that would impact the future. And so you remember David and Jonathan have made the covenant. David remembers that and he is looking about the palace. God has given him rest from his enemies all, about, all around He has united the kingdom. There's no more civil war. But there was something that was beating in the heart of David. I think it's the reason why that Jesus would be called by a blind man. Even a blind man can recognize the fact that Jesus is the son of David. He can see it when other people can't see it. And there was something because what? David was a man after God's own heart. It doth not yet appear what you shall be, but when you see him, you shall be like him. I'm still on the subject. And you, uh, you shall know him as he is. <laughs> but he grows up in this place called Lodibar. <laughs> I mean, even the tone of it sounds depressing, doesn't it? It means without pastor and without promise. So he's starving to death. He's literally starving to death. And he has no promise. he has very sketchy memory of why he's crippled why he's useless and why he's unworthy the problem is is that he is totally unaware that there was a covenant that was made before he was ever conceived You see, most of us, we we still don't understand that our relationship with God is not based on the promises that we make to Him, but based on the promise that He made to us. I shall say that again. Your relationship with God is not based on the promises that you make to Him, but based on the promise that He made to you. And the promises that He made to you were made for you, to you, before you ever arrived. He is the only one who has ever written a will. Only one who has ever written a will. Died, raised from the dead, and probated his own will. (laughs) To ensure that those that he wrote into the will could not be disinherited. You can write me off, write me out. You can say whatever you want to. It really doesn't make any difference because one of these days we're going to wake up. I mean, I see your eyes are open. That doesn't mean you're fully awake. We're going to wake up and we're going to realize that it has always been about Him. Always been about Him. So how damaged is His psyche How distorted is his thinking? How perverted is his perspective on life? Crippled and with a name like this. But David, the heart of the Father, caused his heart to skip a beat one day. And he remembered the covenant that he had made with Jonathan. And notice that he says, is there any left of the house of Saul? He doesn't make mention of the covenant that he made with Jonathan. He says, is there any left? Am I boring you all with this? <laughs> is there any left of the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? Somebody spoke up. Yes, there is. Mephibosheth. Then they summoned for him. You must realize again what must have, the terror that must have been struck in his heart when he sees the king's horses as they approach this place where he's starving to death and he doesn't even realize. <laughs> he doesn't have a clue as to what the intentions of David are. Just like most of us don't have any any clue as to what God's intentions are concerning us. See, listen, do you think God has certain... Delusions about you? (laughs) No, because he's never had any illusions about you to begin with. So he's taken back to the palace, and when he arrives at the palace, I really haven't done too bad here as far as time. So he's taken back to the palace, and here he sees this man. He sees this man. Named David. A king. That he had believed so many lies about for so long. What do you want with me? I'm nothing but a dead dog. (laughs) Quite a powerful image in in that day. He's not talking about a domesticated dog. He's talking about the dogs that ran loose in Jerusalem. You know, they were described as licking up Lazarus' blood in the Old Testament. You know, these are, the, these are the pariah dogs. You've seen these dogs. Maybe in third world countries I have. You know what they look like. You can see every rib. They have this rabid look on their face. And it's because they eat anything they can find. And that's his perception of himself. What a glorious restoration it was. Because see, he didn't know that the covenant had already been made that entitled him to more than he could ever imagine before he was ever conceived. They take this cripple and they put him at the table. Every time he sits at this table, he is restored. Also, all of his inheritance is restored. As he sits at this table, though, he sits across from this stunning specimen named Absalom that, you know, that has the perfect physique and the perfect hair. He is this amazing human being. Looks like he's chiseled out of marble, and he walks, and he's gotten a certain swagger. He's got a certain swagger about him, and he sits across the table from him, who is David's son. And the thing is, as they sit at that table, there is an equalization. There is a balance that takes place. No longer can he see that which has crippled him, not only physically, but emotionally and mentally. Mm -hmm. But he is sitting across from what God really wanted and intended him to be in the beginning. Amen. Amen. So we thank you this morning, Lord. For this love that has not fully been unveiled to us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But when we see it, we will not only know you as you are, but truly as we ourselves are. <clears throat>
0: hmm.
1: Lord, I-, I thank you for that this morning that there is. There is coming down in this place, uh, I see blankets that are just descending right now. These blankets, it's rather unusual, these blankets that I see descending in this room that are falling very softly and gently and tenderly upon those who have lived with lies all of their lives concerning you and concerning themselves. And I believe that this blanket that is wrapping about them is bringing a restoration. A restoration that so transcends their own name and their own heritage. It goes far beyond that. That covering of shame that covering, Lord, of inadequacy and insignificance. Ah, oh, thank You, Jesus, that there's not a person in this room. Not a person in this room, regardless of how they feel about themselves, because help them to understand That you don't feel about them the way they feel about themselves. And they have believed that lie. This must be true. It's so real. It's so poignant. It is so penetrating. This must be how he feels about me. And I believe that this blanket, Lord, that is descending upon them right now is going to so overwhelm and displace those erroneous ideas I'm believing, Lord, that in the days to come, that as they awake in the morning, that they will awaken with one more upgrade after another of who they are. They will, it will even get to the point that people that have known them all their lives will look at them and see that there's such transformation that they almost have gotten to the point that they're not fully recognizable as they used to be. Let it, let it happen. Let it happen. I believe it's coming. I don't, that, that's a strange thing. I just saw blankets coming. That's the strangest thing. I don't know if I've ever seen that. I saw them coming all over the room. Just wafting in here very softly and gently and resting upon you. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Ah. Oh, thank you for that, Lord. I don't know what that means, Lord. I don't have to know what it means. Uh, Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I believe that there is such a transformative work here that is taking place that is that is not something that is, that is just temporary in nature. Can you sense that here this morning? In another five minutes. I, I just really sense, you know, uh, my wife's oldest brother, has been at Duke in the last few months and uh, he was diagnosed with a form of leukemia and uh, determined that he was to have a bone marrow transplant. And we've learned so much through this, so many different things. But one of the things that was so amazing to me, uh, Byron, was that when they've, you know, it take, it's a very tedious process to find a compatible donor. That's one thing, I knew that. But then when they found this donor that had to be a perfect match minus the myodysplasia that he had, they uh, took my brother-in-law in in and destroyed his immune system. Uh, They had to totally destroy his immune system to prepare him to receive this bone marrow. So I don't know, uh, it took him, what, 30 days or so, something like that, and then he was ready. Is that right, sweetheart? He was ready when they went in. Now listen to this. I'm just, you know, this is just causing my revelation meter to go off the mark, off the charts. When I'm hearing this, they're saying the day that they were getting ready to give him the transfusion, uh, the doctors they took a look at the stem cells and they realized they didn't have enough stem cells from this donor. And so, I I guess the first uh, harvesting of the cells was not as evasive an evasive procedure as what they were getting ready to do. So they contacted him. He consented to come back in. This time they took the cells from his hip, which was far more ev- evasive and, and left him with a lot of residual pain following. And, uh, but they said that's really a good thing because we can harvest more cells and higher quality cells from his hip. They went on to tell us that after this, after this transfusion takes place, transplant, whatever, that uh, our, my brother-in-law's DNA will totally change. He won't have the same DNA that he had before this disease attacked his body. Then I began to realize, you know, is this maybe what, to some degree, what Paul was hinting at when he said that the Word is alive and Powerful. And sharper, as the Message Bible, I think, says, sharper than any surgeon's scalpel. Reaching even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and to the joints and the marrow. You know, the power of His Word has the ability to reach so deep into the core, to the foundation, into the structure of who we are. Everything that holds us up. Right? Because I believe that every every genuine transformation, sustained transformation, starts at a cellular level. It's true in the natural. It's true in the spirit as well. I'm just praying that that word... That we got that transfusion of truth this morning. And it starts, see, he's right now in that process where his body is beginning to remanufacture healthy cells. (laughs) I was, you know, I was thinking about that. I thought, Lord, just so trans, let me get such a transfusion, such a transfusion of your love that it just regenerates me from the inside out. It's wonderful to have encounters every once in a while, but I want something that just moves me from the inside out. Yeah? Go ahead and stand with me. Lord, we just thank You for that this morning. Thank You for that.
0: Ah,
1: thank You, Lord. Thank You, Lord, for Your unconditional love. <clears throat> Lord, just before I turn the microphone over here, I just, I do pray for the abused and the misused, the sexually and the spiritually. Some who have been uh, have been the victim of spiritual predators, uh, who also have been assaulted, and who have been so, so terribly violated that they don't feel that they can ever be transparent with anyone again. I pray for. I just feel like there's some people showed up here this morning like that too, that have been so terribly violated spiritually. They've had their confidence. They they've had. uh, They've been raped emotionally, totally raped emotionally. And and, uh, I just believe that your love right now cauterizes that. Cauterizes that. I just believe that the the spirit of wisdom and revelation that just is in this room like a fog is let them just take a deep breath of that right now let them ingest it so deeply Lord that it sets them free from the fear of that potentially happening again in the future thank you Lord there is a love that literally that is so perfect that it casts out every form of fear every form of fear in all of its many faces, in all the ways, many ways it manifests. Lord, we acknowledge that there's so many things that we that we're tra- struggling with right now that are merely symptoms of a deeper thing. And uh, really, some of us are struggling financially, and it's not about finance at all. Some of us are, s- are struggling, Lord, in relationships, and we're, we're struggling in so many different ways. But those are just symptoms of a deeper thing. It really has to do with You wanting to give, reveal to us the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of Your incomprehensible love. Thank You, Jesus. Thank You for restoration here this morning. I thank You for the joy that is going... I th- Lord, if we could dial in, if we could dial into the frequency of heaven right now, we would hear such jubilation such incredible jubilation because some of them who have been your sons and daughters all along and they've never denied you are coming home right now. <laughs> I thank you that the band is striking up. If we, Let us hear that, Lord. Let us hear that sound of incredible jubilation and party this morning that we're returning to who you are, to who you fully are in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, guys. You've been really gracious. I didn't, I didn't go that long, did I? Okay.